millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Skylines is brought to you by 100 Resilient Cities. Pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation, 100 Resilient Cities is dedicated to helping cities around the world become more resilient to the physical, social, and economic challenges of the growing part of the 21st century. You can find out more at its website, 100resilientcities.org. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week we're going to talk about trains again. We just talked about trains. That was like two episodes ago. That's like, I mean, it's been like four weeks. That's, trains are important. Trains are a big deal around here. I know. I know. This is definitely not just because I've got an interview I've been sat on that I want to use. It's that it's because import, there's important stuff going on in the world. Stop looking at me like that. So, okay, it's both because you've got an interview to use and because you've been reading a book about trains. I isn't have been it? reading a book about trains. Tell I've, me about the book about trains. So it's a book by the journalist Matthew Engel. I think it's mostly associated with the FT these days, but it's called Eleven Minutes Late. And it's a sort of history of the British Railways, and it's really good. Can I tell you about the history of the British Railways? You can, and then I will tell you my Matthew Engel story, but you go first. Is that one of those stories that we want to do off the podcast, or...? No, it's fine. Okay. I think... (laughs) Okay, that's fine. This is me burning all of my bridges. No, it's fine. You go first, though. Tell me about how good his book is. So... Yeah, it's just that sort of Bill Bryson styles of exploration, and like a bit of travelling and a bit of history, and I'm, I'm nuts for that. Um, but but the thing I found really interesting about it that I hadn't quite appreciated is, do you know why the British railways are weird in European terms? Is it because they're really expensive and inefficient and they don't have proper aircon? Do you know the other more historic reason why the British railways are weird in European terms? Go on. Nobody ever planned them. It was all... Like, the, the story of the... the the railway interest in Parliament in the 19th century is basically just MPs absolutely refusing to get involved in this industry that was transforming the economy and transport and, you know, knocking down people's homes and was also occasionally killing people through through neglect and, and poor regulation. And, and Parliament just didn't want to touch it. They just let them get on with it. So this has had all sorts of weird effects. Like, this is the reason there's, like, how many main line stations are there in London? It's about twelve, isn't it? It's kind of, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's it's it's a lot. It's because like when when the railway companies were were all private concerns building this stuff, they just decided, well, we really we want our sort of you know palace of of, of railway technology. 
So you get like King's Cross and St Pancras right next to each other because they're all built by completely different companies. Yeah, so this ties in with um, a few years ago I reviewed an academic book on the London Underground as a non-space, so as a a place where you don't really feel like you're in the environment and you just follow signs and everything's kind of mediated by text and arrows telling you which way to go rather than feeling like you're actually in a place. And that was similarly all about how different companies and American investors put their money into the tube system and basically now we have our tube map. Yeah. Same principle. Yeah, no, a lot of the British transport system was just built by this kind of rush of Victorian and Edwardian private investors thinking, hey, I can make money out of doing this. So this is where you've got a ridiculous number of lines into London, far more than you would kind of ever have planned for. And and in some ways it's kind of, it, it was inefficient. So you kind of end up with, uh, in 1963, you get the beaching report where, like, finally it's a nationalised industry and it's losing an absolute fortune because ultimately you couldn't make money from every one of these local train lines. And beaching wanted to go far further than, than the government actually did in closing stuff. Like, he wanted to close the East Coast Main Line north of Newcastle, between Newcastle and Edinburgh, which is ridiculous because that's not only really useful, it's also the pretty bit. <laughs> but yeah, but so you just get this ridiculous thing like you get do you know the settled Carlisle line you ever used that? I have, yeah, I have. It's which is completely <laughs> and utterly pointless. It's just there already was like an East Coast line and a West Coast line and the railway company wanted to build its own line to the north, so it just built one down the middle of the Pennines where nobody lives. But that line is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. It has the tiniest trains. It's because nobody uses it, except people have gone there specifically so they can say they're going on the Settle to Carlisle line. That's the only reason you'd do it. See, the only times I've used that line are when it was really expensive to buy a ticket on an efficient line. So I ended up going on kind of a weird split-ticketing adventure through the Pennines. But they're basically, if you've never been on this line, which most of you won't have done because, as John says... It goes nowhere. And there is no point. It is kind of like if somebody designed the inside of a train to as closely as possible resemble a bus... It's very, very weird. It's like bench seats covered in fabric. Yeah. Yeah, you you will have seen nothing like it. But quite a lot of Northern Lines are like that, aren't they? Because they've just had chronic underinvestment for decades and decades. Yeah. My favourite weird train line, or not even that weird, my favourite story of industrial train building that therefore has ended up and we've ended up in a situation where it's incredibly inefficient, is the southwest train line down into Cornwall, which was built by Eisenbach Kingdom Brunel, famous industrialist, which follows exactly the coast down, once you get past Exeter, going through to Plymouth and crossing the Tamar. It's this beautiful stretch where it follows the coast, and in high seas you get spray on the windows, and it's gorgeous and lovely. But the maximum speed on that line, somebody will write in and tell me I'm wrong, but it's something like 60 miles per hour, which is obviously not very quick. So you have this incredibly long line, unnecessarily long line, and every time there's any kind of landslide, part of it falls in the sea and it has to close. And there is no other line into Cornwall. That's amazing, the fact that it does just fall into the sea occasionally. Yeah, like every every two winters, it's just like, oh, you can't do that anymore. But this is kind of a weird side effect of the whole the thing where we ended up with excess capacity. Because you can kind of look at this in two different ways. You can either go, this is a very inefficient system and we're wasting money on this. Or you can see it as, well, we've built redundancy in because like, it doesn't actually 
the country doesn't break when the West Coast Main Line goes down because there are other ways of getting trains from London to the north of England. It's a pain in the ass, but you know there are other routes you can go down. So this was something else from the Engel book is this was actually quite useful during the World Wars because it made it quite difficult to knock out the British Railway Network because there were so many sort of extra lines that you probably would never have planned for but it just meant it was much easier to guarantee being able to get trains up and down the country. And that isn't always true in Europe, where like a lot of the countries that built the railway network slightly later and sort of looked at Britain and went, God, what are you guys doing? We're going to do it differently. And they planned it very carefully. Like The, the, the Prussian military basically were heavily involved in planning the German rail network to enable troop manoeuvres. But it means that there aren't these redundant lines. There's just kind of the one main line to the, to the west or whatever. So actually... You know, redundancy can be good. So you don't want to renationalise all the railways? I don't know where you stand on this. I don't know where I stand on this. I, I get I, turned around on this because it's not like... I, I think often people forget how bad the nationalised British Rail was. <laughs> and like I think the strong... like They, they, they totally buggered up privatisation, I think. But the, the strongest argument for something of that sort was like the government of the day was just never investing in the railways because it was always long-term capital spending and they needed the money for something much more immediate. So by, by sort of privatising it, it was meant to encourage private capital in and in a few areas that's actually worked quite well. If you look at like the Chiltern lines into Maryland, where they gave them a long-term contract, the, the private company has actually sort of spent money on, uh, on, on extending that line and building extra stations and making the stations nice and so on which British Rail really hadn't. They kind of let it decay. So so what you're basically saying is we can have a really combined and an even unfair development of lines across the country in which places like the Chilterns, where there's money concentrated, get lovely train lines, and back up north they have to have you know buses on wheels and Cornwall occasionally falls into the sea. But that's still better than neglecting all of the train lines in the country. I think what you've got to remember is that people who live in rich bits of the country are, are better Oh, I mean, oh my god, yeah, that makes so many yeah. things make sense. Actually, no, like, we're being, we are being silly because I think the reason the Chilton deal worked better is actually just because of the this boring stuff about how they structured the contract. It's just like if you've got that contract for, well, it's early, yeah, but if you've got that for 15 years, you're more likely to invest money in it. Whereas if it's like three years and you're sharing the line, not three, but if it's like seven years and you're sharing the lines with other operators then you just have no financial interest in making the lines work better. So That's probably true, but I would sell my arm if there was a way that the fact loads of middle-class commuters live on that line is unrelated to the fact it's very shiny and new. I mean, that's just a coincidence, isn't it? Sure. Anyway, should we hear that interview that I've been sitting on? Go on, then. It's with uh, someone who is the only person ever who... who basically begged to come on this podcast despite the fact that you know it's it's another journalist who's you know he's, he's a more important person than me he's got a bigger platform than me but he really wanted to do this podcast and he he, he like stayed in the night before and revised somebody who's got a bigger platform than you but is as much of a nerd couldn't possibly comment So I'm Jim Waterson, I'm the political editor at BuzzFeed UK and I've been roped in due to an unhealthy interest in railways by John Elledge here. 
I like the way you said roped in there. Like, I've somehow twisted your arm to do this. I've been very keen to do this, yeah. to be fair. Like, you, you're more excited about this, I think, than any guest we've had in ages. So, which is, which is great. I like enthusiasm. So, trains, eh? Trains are good. What are we going to talk about? So, I want to talk about this mad scheme which failed. And I love a mad scheme that failed because everyone loves that idea of an alternate future that never quite worked out. And in this case, it's the Eurostar, which, as every member of the Metropolitan Elite knows, is that nice thing you can nip on from St Pancras, go over to Paris, go for some shopping, and then nip back at great expense. But it's quite nice because it's a train. But, Jim, surely Eurostar exists. Eurostar does exist, but as part of the planning process, when they were trying to convince the UK and British Rail as well as to pay for this all in the 80s to build the connection from the Channel Tunnel and to build a new station for it, the pitch to MPs was that, yes, London will get this link to Paris, but so will the rest of the UK. And the idea was you could convince Parliament to back this by implementing regional Eurostars. So much like you can get a train from all over France or Germany on high-speed lines, you'd be able to get a train from uh, York or from Leeds or from Wolverhampton direct to Paris through the Channel Tunnel. And it was this great big hope of British Rail that in an age before anyone had considered cheap flights or budget air travel that the regions of Britain would suddenly be connected up to the continent and everyone would be zipping along in their bright new 1990s future on regional trains uh, going through the Channel Tunnel and then ending up all over Europe. And it didn't work. It was a catastrophic failure. And what we're going to talk about is why it failed and the amount of money that was wasted on trying to make it happen. I'm enjoying this alternative uh, parallel universe in which Wolverhampton has like a Parisian-style cafe culture and so on. But Are you saying it doesn't at the moment? When were you last in Wolverhampton? I get so many letters from Wolverhampton. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. He's saying we're not Birmingham. But anyway, before I get any more, why did it fail? What went wrong? It's a very attractive vision. Trains are, let's be honest, trains are far more fun than planes. Why can't you get a direct train from the lovely city of Wolverhampton direct to Paris? Well, to start with, we've basically got to consider the fact that Eurotunnel financially is a total disaster. It's 
financially never going to return the amount of money that was spent on it. The Channel Tunnel Rail Link, which is the bit that connects the actual tunnel down on the southeast coast all the way into London, was supposed to be built entirely from private funds. Eventually, the government ended up stepping in to pay for it because the, there was no way you could justify the returns. Eurostar, which only operates the trains, has also struggled to turn a profit and also struggled to hit the passenger numbers expected. And so basically, by the time that anyone started to actually implement these regional railways, these regional Eurostars, when it opened in the mid-90s, they started to realise this was never going to work. This was a total disaster. So they reserved routes uh, all the way down from Scotland. There was going to be a separate sleeper service. They built special trains for the day services. They then also built special sleeper cars, which are going to run from places like Swansea, places like Plymouth. They actually built the trains? Yeah, they actually built the trains. This is what's great. This is what people don't realise, that... The investment was enormous. Outside Manchester, they built a special Eurostar depot, which was sitting there until a couple of years ago, unused in its lifetime, all to maintain this fleet of services, which was never, ever, ever used. I think several hundred million was spent connecting the East Coast and West Coast mainlines up to other links in London so they could then go around London and connect up with the Channel Tunnel Rail Link. Remember that at this point, Eurostar was running out of Waterloo International. It was taking an hour or so to trundle through suburban lines of London to the Channel Tunnel. The whole Channel Tunnel rail link thing connecting up with St Pancras was still being built. Basically, it was a classic bit of over-optimistic planning mixed with the politics of getting approval for it, which meant that hundreds of millions were spent. Dozens of trains were specially converted, locomotives were made available for this, and the idea was you'd you know, have a nightly Swansea to Paris sleeper service, which would be partly hauled by a diesel train, then switch to a specially converted uh, electric locomotive, and then be hauled through the, t- the, uh, the Channel Tunnel while bypassing London. And it's also one of the reasons we ended up with this bizarre station, Stratford International in East London, because the idea was your regional services, because you couldn't go into the... Uh, dead end of a depot at St Pancras would zip down the East Coast mainline and then connect to, to Stratford International and then go on to the continent. So the amount of infrastructure that we have in the UK currently, the amount of railway infrastructure and the amount of locomotives and special carriages that were ordered and built because of this, when it was clearly never really going to work and certainly wasn't going to work as soon as budget airlines started flying from places like Manchester to Paris for 30 quid return... It's just amazing. I, I want to unpack a little bit why it didn't work. But firstly, I just I think we should make clear for anyone who isn't intimately familiar with, with the London Round Network that the amazing thing about Stratford International is it is served by precisely no international trains. I'm not sure a single international train has ever actually stopped there to pick up or unload passengers. It's just, but it's still known as Stratford International. I love that. I think it's delicious. And it's all sitting there with them basically... Uh, the operator's basically saying, oh, Eurostar, would you, would you consider stopping in Stratford? And they're like, well, we did just pick a load of people up from St Pancras. And everyone going, oh, well, in that case, there's not a lot we can do. Why, why has Eurostar never made any money? What's the problem? It's, it's, I think it's fundamentally uh, competition from budget airlines. There's incredibly high access uh, charges for using the tunnel. And it's worth remembering that the tunnel is a separate entity to Eurostar, the The company that operates the trains. Because there's never really been any competition on the line, that means we associate them as one and the same. But actually, in reality, if you think you've got Eurotunnel, who own the actual infrastructure, 
you've got the people who own the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, and then you've got this company which tries to make money running services while paying those two for the right to do it. Um, and that, basically, the charges have always been too high and the demand's always been too low. The budget airlines is an interesting point because that, that kind of kicked in within living memory, right? That wasn't really a thing before sort of early this century. It used to be much more expensive to, to get on a plane. It came out of nowhere in about sort of 94, 95, 96. If you think of sort of uh, Jeremy from uh, uh, Luton Airport on the EasyJet, uh, sort of there was that TV show where he'd always be sort of running around and everyone was very excited because suddenly you could book directly and the chance of sort of nipping abroad for a city break was an option in a way it just hadn't been before. The cost of a flight from, you know, if you think what's the cheapest Eurostar return now, sort of 60, 70 quid yeah. return. It's of that order of magnitude, yeah. You'd struggle even in the mid-90s, to find uh, an airfare as cheap as that. And two decades on, you could probably definitely do that from Stansted for about that price. And yeah. so that's, that's basically what the problem is. It was conceived in an age when air travel was something that was ultra-elite and that we've got this middle option where people can zip about on trains like they do in continental Europe, and it never quite works. I mean, the other crazy thing is the extent to which the Channel Tunnel plans changed and changed and changed. I mean... Until 1991, it was going to run through Peckham and it was going to rise next to Peckham Rye Station in South London and then was abandoned because Michael Heseltine had this big idea about going to Stratford. So the whole thing was realigned over one cabinet meeting when Michael Heseltine basically kicked up a fuss. This is basically a plan that no one really had done any planning or any building of new railways in the UK for decades and no one really knew quite what they were doing. And the regional Eurostars, which then the physical trains ended up sitting in sidings for ages before being sold off and scrapped. And the sleeper carriages actually ended up, up being sold off to Canada, where they currently operate. Well, I'm glad someone's making use of them. I mean, I'm glad it wasn't a total waste of everyone's time. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just the extent to which they sold MPs. Give us all this money. You're a northern MP, but have you considered a nice weekend trip to Paris for your constituents? And then as soon as they actually built the damn thing, going, ah, just, this, is, this isn't going to work, is it? Is High Speed 2, the, uh, the, the proposed high-speed link between London and the north of England, is that going to change any of this? It could have done. It really could have done, except the one thing is there's no longer really going to be a connection between High Speed 2 and High Speed 1. So the link to the Channel Tunnel, which is going to be a few hundred yards away from the Euston terminus of High Speed 2... There was a big plan to have a connecting uh, line through Camden, but because of all the complaints, it got dropped. And so, basically, there won't be a physical way of doing it. So we're going to come within a few hundred yards of feasibly being able to run the Manchester to Paris service all the way on high-speed lines, but we won't have that key connection. But the real issue and the real thing that stopped all of this is Schengen. Because Britain requires passport checks uh, to go abroad, we have to have extra tough security. So that means at any station where you run a direct service, you've got to have a sort of parceled off platform with scanners, with passport checks. And that just means that it's not really feasible. Yeah, no, that's a peculiarly irritating thing about it, actually. A couple of summers ago, I got a train from London to, to Marseille in the south of France, which is incredibly civilised. Just get on the train, you sit on it for six hours. And then you're out of grey and rainy London and you're in the Mediterranean. It's absolutely wonderful. But the train back takes seven hours rather than six because they turf everyone out at Lille, make you queue up, go through passport control and get back on. And it's just complete 
wasted everyone's time. I was just thinking at the time, wouldn't it be much easier if we were just, you know, in Schengen and we didn't have to do this? But we're having Brexit instead, so that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I can't see post-Brexit the idea of a direct, easy link to the continent being at the top of anyone's wish list. I think it's going to be British trains for British workers yeah. instead. We'll probably pour concrete into the Channel Tunnel. Yeah, I mean, I just... Uh, that is... The Schengen thing is basically all part of why this regional idea... Um, failed. It's it's just a classic b- bit of British over-optimism which never quite had the planning. There was too many minor little barriers in the way which then added up. There was the fact that no one really knew what route would run because you were going to end up going the wrong way through London because you couldn't run into any of the big terminuses. It just failed and it cost hundreds of millions of pounds and that's slightly why I love it because it was one of those things that, that someone dreamt big and it fell flat on its face. I, I'm sure in the past I've seen there's been talk of doing like commuter services from northern France, and those have presumably fallen over for the exact same reason around Schengen and so on. I'd imagine so. I mean, I, I just can't see it happening. I mean, Eurostar's now cutting back on the number of services it's running because it says it can't make enough money on them. There's also been talk of like extending the list of destinations or getting other operators in, though, hasn't there? I mean, is that, is that likely to change anything? I'm sure Deutsche Bahn have talked about running services through the Channel Tunnel. Yeah, there's a glorious bit of protectionism with that because the current Channel Tunnel trains, at least locomotives for your more pedantic listeners, they can split in two and so power sort of as independent halves like a worm sort of out of either end of the tunnel in in event of emergency. But the problem is that no one really manufactures train sets like that. So Eurostar has basically really fought very hard to stop any competition by claiming that the safety issues if you let anyone else in on the tracks. But they are going to launch to Amsterdam, so that's cool. So you can't go from Wolverhampton to Paris, but you will be able to go from London to Amsterdam, which is great for stag dudes. Much more relaxing. So, John, off the back of our train episode, we have another bit of user participation to share. What what are we asking the users to participate in this time? We're asking them to tell us about their worst ever train journey, or public transport journey in general. Okay, so what have we got? We have got mostly stories about men masturbating, people vomiting, or the police being called. The beautiful holy trinity of bad transport stories. Can we talk about train wanking for a bit? Um, if you want. Like, what the fuck? Like... <sighs> yeah, so you know how earlier in this podcast you told me about how middle-class people are just inherently better? Yeah. Men are inherently terrible. Yeah. Well, they're not inherently terrible. Men are socialised to be terrible because of patriarchy. But yeah, they're really awful. And almost every it's... woman has a story of being <laughs> wanked out on public transport. I mean, this is clearly... This clearly is a pretty universal experience, which is like, it's another one of those universal experiences I don't think was clear how universal it was till social media happened. It's like, and everyone's like, yep, that's happened to me. But I just, even accepting the essential terribleness of men, I kind of just don't understand why. I'm probably the wrong person to talk about this, but I kind of feel uncomfortable taking my clothes off in front of my actual wife. So, like... (laughs) So, so like, you know, why? Well, you don't how are these people so confident they're just whacking it out on the tube? But they, you don't necessarily have to get it out. You can do it through your pocket. You can put your hand down your trousers. I mean, the nudity is not the defining feature. <laughs> no, that does actually I, clear that up for me, because I've been like... Well, 
which yeah no it is it's a very very weird situation so um it's not that weird it ties in with every other experience of being a woman in public space i don't know why i'm saying it's weird i wish it was weirder um but yeah it was very odd because i kind of put the call out on twitter as you do with our joining with the city metric podcast things and said you know what's your worst ever story here's mine oh i was on an eight-hour flight from london to boston and this guy kept talking to me about israel palestine and then a load of women responded going, what about wanking? And I was like, well, yeah, obviously my worst story is actually a wanking story, but that's boring, isn't it? We've all got one of them. <laughs> I just... <laughs> he looks so shell-shocked. I just, I can't get my head around that. I mean, I know, like, the, the only thing... You can't get your head around them getting their hand around their head. I, I, I know that, like, men going, God, who are these guys, is, like... It's like almost as bad as the crime itself, but I just can't understand the logic of. This is because men, this is sexual harassing men are sneaky and they do it much less when other men are there because women on their own are vulnerable and that's kind of the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a power thing, right? It's It's, a power thing. It's a power thing and also, you know. I mean, but but it is a power thing, they're not thinking like this is, this is, this will get, this will impress her. Like, this isn't a flirting thing. I, I mean, I really find it hard to empathise, but I don't think so. I think it's a creepy power thing. Okay. I think it's like I'm getting off on making you a bit uncomfortable. And what better place to do that than, you know, during the descent on a flight to Barcelona? Just to pluck an example from midair. Um, if, if I'm interested to know how universal this experience is, so, you know, if you've experienced this in, in a, a non-Western country, then please, please do write in. Yeah, I mean... What? They have, based on our tweets. <laughs> if, you, if you are a man who has masturbated aggressively at a woman in public transport, write in confidence to John and tell us what, what the, the fuck you were doing? thinking. What, what's going on there? And don't write to me, because I don't ever want to hear from you, you disgusting creature. Anyway, on to the story. What else, what else have we got? Yeah, we have a lot of stories about the police getting involved. Louise O'Connor talks about an hour-long standoff between police and 30 intoxicated youths on the 46A in leafy, leafy South Dublin. I want to know how 30 drunk teenagers coordinated themselves. Because I, as a drunk teenager, could not coordinate with three people. It's an impressive pack mentality. <laughs> yeah. There is another, um, Heather Froelich, who was also on a flight to the States and had a lawyer hit on her aggressively for eight hours by talking about his journal articles... If you are a lawyer who regularly travels from London to the US, stop talking to us. I'm really struggling to pluck out examples I can actually read out because they're all about wanking. (laughs) It's just just a sea of wanking. Um, Okay, here's one. Charlotte Riley says, A woman once threw up down the back of my legs on the 25 night bus, then threw up into the lap of her date. She got off the bus to the next stop, and it turned out the man sitting next to her wasn't actually her date. So the two of us had to ride the rest of the 25 route covered in some random woman's sink. There's a lot of stories about... Oh, but about then she then moves on to stories about groping. Um, yeah, see, this is it. There, there are loads of stories about vomiting and loads of stories about wanking. If everyone could just keep their blo- bodily fluid to themselves on public transport. Here's a kind of funny one that nobody gets their penis out in. Adam Cobb tells the story of BA having one of its Heathrow meltdowns and he was given a sleeping bag to use in the ballroom of a hotel. Oh, that's quite grim. That's what about spitting? That's more bodily fluids. Uh, Christoph Smyers tells the story of being stopped in a train 
um, travelling from Berlin to Brussels, being stopped near a village on the border. They were looking for an escaped lady from a mental institution. Passengers were then told to get off and stand purposely in the purposeful... Oh! Passengers were then told to get off and stand purposelessly in a field. We could hear the escaped lady cackle in an invisible dark distance. (laughs) Here's a good one which definitely isn't bodily fluids. Meg Evans says, On the bus home from school once, a group of teenage boys poured a bag of sawdust over me. To this day, the feeling that resonates is not embarrassment or upset, but where did they have the sawdust? (laughs) Um, Harry Harris gives a very understated story in which he just says, Oh, I sat next to a monster twat on the way back to Edinburgh after Christmas. Total wanker. I think he means figurative wanker. should clarify after all of the wanking chat we've been having. Does he specify the nature of the... I think he just tried to talk too much. Did I ever tell you about the time that Ryanair took me prisoner in Bratislava? No, that sounds amazing. No, I mean, I'm I'm overselling it slightly there, but they, um, you know the way Bratislava is is also um, sort of the suburb of Vienna, despite being literally in a different country. So, like, you can get cheap flights to Vienna, they're actually to Bratislava, which is about 30 miles away. Um, And we were on our way back, and they kind of checked everyone's passports and tickets, and then sort of herded us into this... Uh, room as if they were going to let us on the plane and then close the door behind us. <laughs> <laughs> there was no there was no plane yet. But for administrative reasons, it was easier to get to check all our tickets, get us up the entire flight into this small room and then just not let us out again. So I remember seeing, we were there for about an hour and a half and I remember seeing this this quite old guy going up to the woman in the door and saying, sorry, could I, could I get out to go to the loo? And she just went, no. I can't believe Rhino took you hostage. <laughs> I can't. I know it's shocking to know that Ryanair will give such bad service to its passengers. I hope you wrote in and complained. I'm, I'm getting my own back now, aren't I? Take that, Ryanair. I once had a three-hour delay. I can't remember if we were on Ryanair or Aer Lingus or something else, but flying from London City Airport to Dublin, and I was with my partner and also with Neil from Suede, who was on an earlier podcast, and kind of passing time in an airport, and you could just see Neil wasn't that bothered. And it was only when we started playing card games and he absolutely destroyed both of us that I realised he's got a lot of experience hanging around at airports, that touring musician. So never play card games with anyone... From who... suede? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those things that I think is a less universal experience than you believe Or, or just anyone who's frequently on tour. So it's like, oh, a bit of a card game. And then it's like, oh, you have, you know, if you cumulatively added it up, he spent a year of his life playing Snap. You never told me your Matthew Engel story. What's your Matthew Engel story? Is it about trains? It's not about trains. And also, it's slightly disingenuous to call it a Matthew Engel story because poor Matthew Engels didn't do anything wrong. So this is when I was an intern at the Financial Times in my youth, my younger and more vulnerable years. And I had to fact-check a Matthew Engel story about counties. I think he was talking about counties. And one of the things he'd written about was driving into Manchester in 1970 and passing a coal mine going into the city centre. Um, and there once was a coal mine in Manchester, it's where you know the stadium I don't want to talk about now stands. Um, but it wasn't still there by 1970. And the incredible fight I had to have with otherwise reasonable people to convince them that there wasn't a coal mine in Manchester in 1970 was tremendous. Um, I think they just thought I was doing a kind of chippy northerner thing and I was really going, no, 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 that, you know, there used to be one, he was just a few years out, 
they were definitely not one by 1970. I ended up calling up the Museum of Science and Industry and getting kind of testimony that this mine had been removed by that day. Um, so it's not really a Matthew Engel story at all, but it is a story about how the North is mistreated by the media. Do you think it would be possible for us to get Andy Burnham to make a statement about the importance of coal mining to the Mancunian economy? Oh, my God, please, yes. <laughs> I've just been... Um, I've, I've literally just finished writing a story on who, who, who is running for the Manchester mayoralty, and my favourite thing I found out about it is, like, Jane Brophy, the Liberal Democrat candidate, of the ten most recent press statements she's put out, seven of them are about Brexit... One of them has the magnificent headline, Congestion Charge is not the answer, European Union is. <laughs> That's so weird, because I was really unsure with this whole Brexit thing, whether the better thing to do is to just charge cars in central London or not leave the single market. What I'm really saying here is the poor quality of other candidates mean that I think Andy Burnham is going to walk out. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.